Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Now, as we kind of look at these six verses, the quarrels from pride, I want to real quickly kind of give us our, our springboard for the rest of the text this evening. There's one kind of place in there that is really kind of our central theme or our central verse as we look to this whole section of Scripture. And it's found in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. Adulterers and adulteresses, and it says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so that's kind of, that's really the springboard for our whole text this evening. The friendship with the world. We're going to see that that's kind of the pinnacle of the whole conversation, you might say. It kind of predicates on that friendship with the world. So let's look at what that even means before we can dive into the rest of our text. That word for friendship there, that word for friendship is, is an interesting word. It's actually the word phileo. It means it's a, it's a word that's used to describe love. So most people that have been in church very often, you've heard somebody stand up, and I, I almost never will do this because it's done so often, but somebody will talk about the different Greek words for love. And so they'll talk about the agape love, and they'll talk about the phileo love, and that's the same word we get right here. And, and that, that phileo type of love, that word phileo literally refers to a, a friendship and affectionate type of relationship. And so it's talking about something that you give your affection, something that you give your attention to. You might call it that, uh, that kind of huggy, kissy kind of love, if that makes sense. And so what literally James is writing there, he says, do you not know that to have affections and kind of a huggy, kissy kind of love and to set your sight upon and set your desires upon the things of the world? He's literally not talking about the occasional soiree into worldly living. He's not talking about the well intentioned believer who, who slips into a backslidden condition. He's not talking about the churchgoer who, who has a, a problem. They slip in, they lose their temper, or they have a moment where they lose it. He's literally talking about the kind of believer who, who falls into a state where they have an affection for their sin. They start to love their sin. They start to consider their sin their friend. They start to, to have that worldly wisdom displayed in their lives and they start to embrace that. And so now in light of that, knowing that that's kind of the springboard, let's back up to verse 1 and the question that James asks us right off the bat, where do wars and fights come from among you? Now that word for, for wars literally means armed warfare and conflict. Armed Warfare and conflict. And it seems like a, a strong wording, but the idea is that long-term or repetitive type uh, of the most violent of warfare. And then he says, well, where do the wars and fights come from? Where? Among you. And so James is writing, keep in mind, who is James writing to? We said all the way back in chapter 1, we established that James is writing to believers. And he's writing to the church, even though it's been dispersed and it's been scattered. He's writing to the church. And so literally what James is saying is, is where does this armed warfare and eternal conflict come from in the church? Where does this strife come from within the church? Where does it come from in the body of believers? So take all that together. He said, where does this violent, just tearing down of people, where does it come from inside of the body of the local believers? 
Now I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I've never seen a gunfight inside the church, so it seems like we're probably doing okay. I've never seen anyone even draw a weapon inside the church. So it seems like what James is writing to doesn't relate to us. But let's think about the long-term implications of the fighting and disunity inside the body of believers. Does fighting and disunity among the body not have a long-term negative impact just as mightily as an armed war would in the world? That's kind of what James is talking about. You know, when there's a war in a country, it takes that country, how long, years and, and decades and even generations sometimes to recover from that armed warfare that took place in that country. And he's writing and he's saying, these wars and fights that come among you, they're going to have implications that last for generations to come. There's no telling how long it's going to take you to get over these things. So I would say that, that, that maybe even though we've never drawn weapons on one another, that in our churches we can all unfortunately think of a time when there's been a quarrel, where there's been strife, where there's been something come up that the long-term effects affect the members for a long time. So let's answer that question. Where do the wars and fights come from? Because I think that's probably the crux of our text this evening, that we would identify where these fights come from. So, so let's, let's back up a little bit. And I'm sorry, Ms. Lorette, I didn't tell you this, so we'll, I'll, I'll read it to everybody. We're going to back up a little bit to our conversation from last week to James chapter 3. Because, because keep in mind, we, we read our Bibles, and I want to make sure, I think most of you know this, but I want to make sure we understand it. Sometimes we forget. Our, our Bibles are broken up neatly into chapters and subsections and all of these things. But as James penned this letter, he didn't get to the end uh, of verse 18 of chapter 3 and say, Oh, new thought, chapter 4, verse 1. He was writing this letter continuously, and as it's been interpreted for our own benefit, it's been kind of broken up into sections. So you got to kind of take this letter and realize that James's thoughts from chapter 3 really connect right into chapter 4. So let's think back to the end of chapter 3 and what he said. He said, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those that make peace. And so he talks about peace at the end of chapter 3. And then chapter 4, look at that. Chapter 4, he jumps right in. So he says, the fruit of the righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. But where do wars come from? So, so what's he saying? He's like, the, the wisdom of, the, of, the, of the God sows the peace. And then where do the wars come from? And that's a big contrast. He's, he's reiterating his whole point from that section we covered last week. According to verses 17 and 18, believers sow peace and gentleness. They yield. They're full of mercy. They're not quick to anger. They're not quick to have a quarrel. Why? Because they're going to be a peaceable people. They're going to sow peace. They're going to be gentle. They're going to yield. They're going to show mercy if they have the godly wisdom. Have you ever tried to have a quarrel with someone that just wasn't buying into it. It's kind of hard to, to have a quarrel with someone that every time you go to take your shot, they don't fire back, isn't it? You take your shot at them and you're ready for the, you're ready for the fight and all they say is, okay, I'm sorry you feel that way or I'm sorry that I've done that to you. I'll try to do better. But they don't fire back. What does that do to a quarrel immediately? It squashes it out, doesn't it? 
It's hard to fight somebody that doesn't want to fight. You don't look like you're fighting very fair if you do that. And so what the scripture is literally teaching us here is that as believers, if we walk in godly wisdom, then we're to stamp out quarrels before they become conflicts. We're to take these little things and we're to be able to show godly wisdom in those things and and be quick to show mercy. That means I might have to recognize that maybe, just maybe, you see things differently than I do. You may or may not even be right, but I'm going to choose to show you mercy anyway. Maybe, just maybe, we have a different taste in what's going on. But rather than stamp my feet and pitch my fit and cause a conflict, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say, I'm going to see this through with you arm in arm. Why? Because I'm quick to yield, not to get my way, but to submit that God would get his way in this situation. And so where do quarrels stem from? They come from those that display the wisdom that's talked about in verse 14. It says, bitter envy and self-seeking. Those that sow a worldly wisdom that is bitter and envious and self-seeking will always be the ones that fuel the conflicts. And so James is literally saying, blessed are those, you know, we said it's, it's a, this fruit of righteousness sown in peace is a callback to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Right? And he's saying, blessed are the children of God because they sow the righteousness of peace. And when they do that, they stamp out all of these wars and all of these fights and all of this strife among you. And so when you have conflicts, when you have wars, when you have strife within the body, you can 100% of the time take the words of James and apply it and recognize that that somewhere godly wisdom is not being displayed, worldly desires are being fulfilled. Because when godly wisdom is displayed, it's peaceable. Does that mean we always agree? Of course not. I don't even agree with myself sometimes. But I'm generally able to work it out amongst myself. And we should be able to do that as well, respectfully and peacefully and willing to yield to one another. So James, he goes further, though. He reiterates a point. He's not going to let us off the hook that easy. He says this worldly, selfish wisdom is what causes the external conflict, the thing that we see, the thing that runs rampant in our body. But he says it's really a result of an internal conflict within ourselves. Essentially, he's saying... All of our conflicts really boil down to a five-letter word. It is P-R-I-D-E, pride. What do you mean, Brother Jason? Here's what I mean. Pride says, I'm going to worship myself. I am my own God. I can make my own rules. I know what's best for me. And I feel like I know what's best for you. And if you don't do it the way I think you ought to do it, you're doing it wrong. And if you don't see it my way, you're wrong. And so I'm going to worship myself because that is the exact opposite of worshiping God, right? There's there's nothing about worship of God that says I'm going to do my own way. Submitting to God says I'm going to do it God's way. And the very nature of us being human says that God's way in its nature is contrary to our own way. So we have to kill our pride in order to even follow God to begin with. And so when you see someone seeking to serve themselves, 
that pride is there, and then you have someone seeking to serve the Lord, what happens? There's going to be a clash, isn't there? Because the person seeking to serve the Lord is going to be seeking righteousness, and those seeking to serve themselves are going to be seeking self-righteousness. And there's always going to be a conflict every time. It says that internal conflict, those internal desires, he, goes, he, he uses a word that's strong. He says, you lust and you do not have. Literally, to, to long for. That word lust means longing for something. He's saying you long for the things that you don't have. And he even uses that word. It kind of gives us that same connotation from sexual immorality. Not only do you long for what you don't have, you long for what you shouldn't have to begin with. Saying this is what you do. You look at the things and you long for what you shouldn't have to begin with. He says you murder and you covet. Now, when James says that word murder, I know some of us were pretty quick to tap out. You said, I've never murdered anybody. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in his Sermon on the Mount. He says murder is really begins with anger. That if you have anger against your brother without cause, you have already committed murder in your heart. And so I don't know about how holy the rest of you are, but even though I've never murdered anyone, I've murdered plenty in my heart, according to what Jesus says murder is. I've had plenty of anger against people. I've lusted after things that I didn't have, probably even things that I shouldn't have. And then he goes even further to, to make sure he encompasses us all. He says, and you covet Now, I don't know if anyone in here, I don't want you to show your hand if you claim to have never coveted after something because I don't want to have to call you a liar. But we have all coveted after something. We've all wanted something that someone else had. We've all wanted to be something that someone else was. We've wanted something either or temporal or eternal that somebody else, we've wanted their position, we've wanted their recognition, we've wanted their car, we wanted their house, their phone. We've wanted something that someone else has, and that is coveting. He says, so where do these things come from? We lust, we murder, we covet, and we just cannot obtain. We just cannot obtain. He says, this troubles us. This causes our strife. And this is a display of the roots of our wisdom. And all of our conflict stems from a heart condition. It's all stemming from an internal condition. The things that we desire cause us to have conflict among ourselves when we don't seek godly wisdom. But he goes further. He says there's an even bigger problem for you. He says you fight, you war, and then he says what? You, you don't have you don't ask, you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss so that you can spend it on your pleasures. The internal conflict is tearing you apart, causing strife, causing quarrels, and it has you so focused on yourself that you can't even pray anymore because when you do, you ask for your own selfish fulfillment instead of for God to be glorified in your life and in your situation. John 14 claims that this promise, if we ask it in the name of the Father, then he will answer that so that God may be glorified. 
If we ask, if we ask in, excuse me, in the name of the Son, He will grant it that the Father might be glorified. We have that promise from Scripture. But we mess it up, don't we? We mess it up. We say, well, I, I prayed. I prayed for this, John 14, 14. It's, it's an inaccurate scripture because I prayed for something. And when I prayed, I said, dear Jesus. So I prayed in the name of Jesus and I just, I just didn't get it. And God must not have heard my prayers. Therefore, he must not be answering my prayers. Therefore, he must not be the God that he claims to be because he didn't do what he said he was going to do in John 14, 14. But we, we mess it up, though, because we don't have our heart in the right spot, do we? Because if our heart is set with our affections on Christ, then we will be seeking after a godly wisdom. And if we'll be seeking after a godly wisdom, then we'll be seeking after things that glorify God. And I can assure you that Scripture rings 100% true that when you have your affections in the right place, and the things that you pray for are for God to be glorified in your life, that the things that would happen in your life would be for His glory ultimately. 100% of the time, God answers those prayers. Just like Scripture says that He will. Sometimes it happens in His time and not in our own time. But God answers those prayers 100% of the time. But we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle because we struggle with our internal conflict that's tearing us apart. The internal conflict that causes us to, to long for worldly wisdom and worldly things. And so we struggle and we ask for self-glorifying prayers instead of God-honoring and God-glorifying prayers in our lives. So I want you to think with me for just a moment. Think with me for just a moment about a conflict. Because if you've been in church longer than 15 minutes, you've seen a conflict in a church somewhere. I want you to think back to that conflict, and I want you to think real hard about it, and I want you to be real honest. Particularly if you've been in one yourself, I want you to ask yourself these questions about yourself. Was I seeking God-honoring godly wisdom, or was I serving myself in that conflict? If you've never been in one yourself, bless you. Think of another one that you've witnessed or heard about. Did it stem from trying to honor God? Or did it stem from trying to honor someone else? I guarantee you, you will find that 100% of the time our conflicts begin when we look to elevate ourselves or our own desires and not God's. Every time. So how do we squash conflict? How do we squash it? I want to show a hands in here. How many people want to have a lot of conflict in the church? Good. I even asked it tricky and none of you fell for it. We don't want conflict in our churches. We don't want conflict in our lives. I don't want conflict in my family. None of you do either. Inevitably, we have to deal with it, though. That's part of the heart condition that we have. That's part of the world. That's part of the flesh. So how do we squash that conflict, though? Look with me at verses 5 and 6. You think the Scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives what? More grace. Not just grace. More grace. 
I know it doesn't say that on the screen, but if you look at the Greek, it should reiterate more grace. He gives more grace. Oh, it does say it. I'm sorry. But he gives more grace. Perfect. I thought, man, how'd that get messed up? He gives more grace. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So how do we squash conflicts? We extend grace. That shouldn't be that complicated to say that to a bunch of Bible-believing Christians. But go back to that same conflict where you just recognize that somebody was self-seeking. What would have happened if the people within the conflict would have said, you know what? God has forgiven me over and over and over and over again. Time and time again, God has forgiven me. I'm going to do the same before you even ask me for forgiveness. I'm going to forgive you. I'm not going to have a quarrel with you because I'm going to extend grace to you. We're not going to have a conflict here because I'm not going to have a war with you because I'm going to extend grace to you. And I'm going to ask you to extend grace to me that if I've done something, you forgive me. Do you realize how unified a body could be if we could ever grab that? If we could ever stand in the grip of grace and just recognize God's forgiven me over and over again, therefore... I should forgive you over and over again. I may think what you're thinking is crazy. I may think what you're thinking makes no sense. But if I see you as a blood-bought child of God just like me, I should extend grace to you. At least be willing to sit down and have a peaceable conversation with you. Because God gives grace to the what? Somebody help me. There you go. He gives grace to the humble. It's the exact opposite of the pride. So the pride causes our conflicts, but our humility, recognizing that I am not important, but God is most important. Recognizing that my desires mean nothing, but the desires of God mean everything. Recognizing that whether or not I get my way or whether or not it makes me happy doesn't really matter as long as Christ is honored and glorified, as long as God is held in high esteem. If we could just grab that, folks. If we could just grab that. I want you to just think about what we could do as a people in this country, but even more importantly as a people in this church. Extend grace. And be humble. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come to you this evening. Having looked to a letter penned under your inspiration by James. Recognizing that the church thousands of years ago dealt with conflict. Recognizing that still today we deal with conflict. But God, because of that, we can recognize that the truths of Scripture are still truths today. That our pride and desire to be pleasing to ourselves causes our conflict. So God, would you cause us to be 
God-honoring and God-serving and God-glorifying people, not desiring to serve ourselves or elevate ourselves or get our own ways. Grant unity to this body, Lord. And it is in your precious heavenly name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.